You're listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. It's 8 p.m. in Israel, Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. In the headlines, Hamas fires dozens of rockets from South Lebanon. One scores a direct hit on a building in Kiryat Shmona. No injuries. The IDF destroyed the rocket launcher. Hostage families begin a four-day march from the site of the Nobel Party massacre. Five organizations supporting the families of hostages are awarded this year's Genesis Prize. 85% of soldiers who sought mental help for PTSD returned to combat. Tel Aviv and Jerusalem mayors are re-elected. Former Finance Minister Avraham Shochat dies at age 87. Gasoline prices are to rise as the government records record profits from natural gas sales and the weather warmer. Good evening. This is Arie O'Sullivan with the news. We open with the north, and there was a fresh barrage of rockets fired from Lebanon targeting the western Galilee, with impacts reported in open areas. No injuries were reported. This came following a heavy barrage in the Galilee panhandle this morning. The Kiryat Shmona municipality said that one rocket struck and penetrated the roof of a residential building in the city, causing damage but no injuries. Two other rockets fell in open areas, and one fell in an area where a vacation village is under construction. The municipality said seven rockets were intercepted in two barrages. The Hamas military wing claimed it fired 40 Grad rockets from Lebanon at IDF bases in northern Israel. The IDF said it identified 10 launches from Lebanon that infiltrated the country. There were no casualties. The army said it struck the launcher used in the attack. Also, several Hezbollah military infrastructures were attacked in the El Shisaki, Bin Jebel, and Yarin areas. Earlier, the IDF said it struck Hezbollah targets including an arms storehouse, a weapons manufacturing site, in response to earlier rocket fire on northern Israel. Separately, the IDF confirmed last night that an anti-tank missile fired from Lebanon in an an earlier barrage struck the Air Force base on Mount Meron, but stressed that there was no impact on the operational capabilities of the facility. IDF Chief of General Staff, Lieutenant General Herzi Alevi, in remarks during a tour of the northern border, said that the confrontation in the north will continue until security is restored in the region. According to sources close to the interim prime minister in Lebanon, Najib Mikati, Lebanon has not received guarantees from the United States that there will be no escalation on the Israel-Lebanon border or that there will be no widespread Israeli attack. The source told the pro-Qatari newspaper, Al-Arabi Al-Jadid, that Mikati pointed out that American messages have arrived that there are intensive efforts to calm the situation. He also said that calm in Gaza will lead to calm on the southern Lebanon front because the countries of the world are interested in stability in the country and in the region. Well, on day 145 of the war, the IDF says that in the past day, dozens of terrorists were eliminated in the Gaza Strip. Israeli forces continue to operate in Khan Yunus and Zaytun. The IDF spokesman said among the sites hit were eight significant targets from which rockets were fired last night toward Ashkelon. Terror infrastructure was also hit. Along the sidelines of the war, Israeli forces who left Gaza two weeks ago after some two months of fighting discovered and brought back with them an old door sign of an Israeli family that they found in a home in Khan Yunus. The couple, now divorced, said that they were surprised to hear that the entrance sign found its way to Gaza. The IDF has announced that two officers were killed in fighting yesterday in the northern Gaza Strip. Major Iftach Shachar, 25, from Mushav Paran. Captain Nitai Saif, 24, from Yerucham. 
Both of them served in the Givati Brigade Sabar Battalion. They were killed in an explosive device blast in a booby-trap building in Gaza City's Zaitun neighborhood. The IDF said another seven soldiers from the battalion were seriously wounded in the same incident. Their families have been notified. The deaths raised the toll since the start of the ground offensive in Gaza to 242, and the total number of IDF fallen soldiers since the start of the war to 582. Against the backdrop of the war, the IDF is establishing a national and regional center to treat soldiers in need of mental health care. The Technology and Logistics Division, which established the new center, says that 85% of the soldiers who needed treatment returned to combat. The center's commander, Major General Dr. Jacob Rothschild, says that this is an innovative service which will help both permanent soldiers and soldiers in compulsory service. In southern Gaza Strip, an international humanitarian assistance airdrop campaign has concluded. Israel, Jordan, France, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and the United States took part. Over the past two days, some 160 packages, including food and medical equipment, were dropped over 17 points along the southern Gaza shoreline. In Rafah today, there was a demonstration by residents of the Gaza Strip against the price of food. One of the demonstrators admitted that he is unable to buy basic goods, and none of the Hamas representatives came to his aid. He said he bought a kilo bag of flour from a merchant merchant for 200 shekels, and a kilo of sugar cost 80 shekels. A senior UN aid official has warned that widespread famine in the Gaza Strip could be almost inevitable without action. In remarks at a meeting at the UN Security Council last night to discuss the situation in the Gaza Strip, the officials said that aid groups face overwhelming obstacles just to get a bare minimum of supplies into Gaza and reiterated a call for a ceasefire. Israel's deputy ambassador to the UN, Jonathan Miller, told the session that Israel is committed to improving the humanitarian situation in Gaza, adding that the limitations on the quality, quantity and the pace of aid are dependent on the capacity of the UN and other agencies. The U.S. deputy ambassador to the UN, Robert Wood, said the U.S. urges Israel to keep border crossings open for humanitarian aid deliveries to Gaza and to facilitate openings of more crossings. Here's Wood, followed by Miller. Promoting food security is a long-standing U.S. priority, and the situation in Gaza is no exception. We urge Israel to keep border crossings open for humanitarian aid to enter Gaza, to facilitate the opening of additional crossings, to meet humanitarian needs at scale, and to support the rapid, safe delivery of relief items to vulnerable people in all of Gaza. Simply put, Israel must do more. I also share your profound concern for the well-being of the more than one million Palestinian civilians in Rafah. It is unconscionable that Hamas fighters continue to embed themselves among civilians and civilian infrastructure, including in hospitals and schools. We continue to call on Israel to improve deconfliction procedures to ensure aid can move safely and securely. Israel is committed to improving the humanitarian situation in Gaza working constantly to ensure the entry of humanitarian aid from numerous countries and UN agencies. Israel facilitates the entry of humanitarian aid, including food, water, medical supplies and humanitarian supplies, through both the Rafah and Kerem Shalom crossings. Additionally, a humanitarian aid delivery channel via Jordan is operational, and more delivery channels are being formulated and discussed as we sit here today. Since Hamas's barbaric attack on October 7th, And despite this atrocity, Israel has facilitated the delivery of 254,000 tons of humanitarian aid, 
including shelter equipment, water, medical supplies, and of this, 165,000 tons of food. Israel has been clear in its policies. There is absolutely no limit, and I repeat, there is no limit to the amount of humanitarian aid that can be sent to the civilian population of Gaza. Israel's Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, Jonathan Miller, and U.S. Deputy Ambassador Robert Wood. Government spokesperson Tal Heinrich said that suspected Hamas terrorists were detained this week in a convoy of ambulances. She said that Hamas systematically uses ambulances as taxis in the war zone. She blasted a decision by the United Nations to halt the coordination of humanitarian aid distribution for 48 hours in protest, a move which ultimately harmed the Gazans. We say again, there is no limits to the amount of humanitarian aid for the civilians in Gaza. After nearly five months of war against Hamas, we know that once humanitarian aid does get in, the terror organization Hamas takes over. Looting is also a problem. But we are working with the Biden administration to find ways to improve the humanitarian assistance delivery. Now, in relation to this, an important update on a story which was carried by the BBC, AP and other outlets this morning regarding detained Palestine Red Crescent paramedics. Here is what you should know. On Sunday, February 25th, the IDF responded to a request from the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Gaza for assistance in evacuating patients from the Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunus. We coordinated the movement, but at no point did the IDF approve the individuals in the convoy. It is important to emphasize that Hamas systematically uses ambulances for transporting terrorists as their taxis. After starting the movement and after receiving intel that they there may be terrorists within the convoy, the IDF checked the identity of the passengers as it left the hospital. Again, as we've made clear in previous briefings here, Hamas terrorists have in the past few days been apprehended seeking to disguise themselves as evacuating civilians. Now, during the inspection, three Palestinian Red Crescent staffers were stopped for questioning. This was due to credible intelligence regarding their possible involvement in terrorist activity. After questioning them in the field, two of the staff members were arrested for further investigation, and the third one was released. Again, Hamas systematically uses ambulances for transporting terrorists. But the UN's response to this entire episode is the most shocking. Following the detention for questioning of the Red Crescent personnel, the UN halted humanitarian coordination for 48 hours. This had a detrimental effect on ordinary Palestinian patients that suffered from this action. We say loudly and clearly, we have repeatedly warned and will continue to warn about the Red Crescent's ties to terrorism. The UN must verify who they are coordinating movements for. This is not the first time. We simply ask this question. Does the UN take steps to prevent such abuse of humanitarian work? Government spokesperson Tal Heinrich. The Palestinian news agency Wafa reports that the chairman of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, met today in Ramallah with the commissioner general of the UNRWA agency, Philip Lazzareni. In the meeting, Abbas stressed the importance of UNRWA's role in providing services to the Palestinian refugees and promoting support required for the continued operation of the agency. He called for the countries who have withheld their support for UNRWA to retract their position because they are, quote, punishing millions of Palestinian people. 
Efforts to reach a hostage release deal. An Egyptian diplomat has told the pro-Qatari newspaper Al-Arabi Al-Jadid that there is agreement in principle to hold a meeting in Cairo on Sunday to declare a pause in the fighting if a deal is concluded by then. According to the report, there is still no agreement on the details regarding the humanitarian assistance and the return of the displaced Palestinians to the northern Gaza Strip. Israel reportedly agrees to a partial return of Palestinian women and children only to several areas that would be predetermined. And the Lebanese newspaper Al-Akhbar published the framework of the agreement that was presented by to Hamas by mediators in Egypt and Qatar after the Paris summit. The proposal states, among other things, that Israel will redeploy its forces outside of population centers after the start of the first phase and allow the gradual return of displaced Palestinians to their homes in the northern Gaza Strip. Israeli airstrikes over Gaza would be halted for eight hours each day and humanitarian aid would be significantly increased. A common reporter says that the ratio for freeing hostages would be 10 Palestinian prisoners for every hostage who is released for humanitarian reasons. Al-Akhbar reports that Hamas has not yet given a final response to the deal framework and contacts are continuing between the leadership of the terrorist group abroad and in Gaza and with other Palestinian factions. According to the report, despite the difficulties in the negotiations, Egypt and Qatar pledged to the United States that an agreement will be reached before the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which begins next month. Hamas leader Ismail Haniya says any flexibility the organization has demonstrated in negotiations are out of concern for the Palestinian people to protect them. In a film speech, he added that the Palestinian resistance will continue to be ready to make sacrifices. And representatives of Hamas and Fatah will meet in Moscow tomorrow to discuss the formation of a unified Palestinian government and the rebuilding of Gaza. Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Mikhail Bogdanov also confirmed to Rai Novisti news agency that such a meeting was planned. In the U.S., the White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby has expressed hope that a hostage release and temporary ceasefire deal will be reached, but stressed that there is still a way to go. In remarks at a briefing last night, Kirby was asked about the surprise expressed by other parties engaged in the contacts on a deal over President Biden's comments this week that a hostage deal could be hammered out by next Monday. I can't speak for uh, the surprise that foreign leaders have or don't have with regard to uh, uh, things that we're saying. The president uh, talked to you all uh, after uh, staying completely up, up to speed, and he has been kept up to speed on how these negotiations are going. And he shared with you some context, and he certainly shared with you his optimism that we can get there in uh, in hopefully short order. But he also said, you know, it's not all done yet, and you don't and you don't have a deal until you have a deal. We don't have one right now. So the team is still working at this very, very hard, as I said in my opening statement, around the clock. Um, but we believe that we are getting closer. And um, and while we don't want to sound too sanguine or Pollyannish about it, we do think that there's been some serious negotiations. What's the significance of trying to get a hostage deal in place before Ramadan starts on March 10th? What we're focused on, Steve, is getting this deal in place as soon as we can. And you heard from the president. I mean, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're hopeful that this can, this can happen in, in, in coming days. Um, and if that does, if, if we are able to get the pause in place and the hostages out in a relatively short order, then clearly an, an extended pause, as I was talking to Kelly about, would certainly take you into Ramadan. The, but right now, uh, it's 
it's not about trying to beat the clock to Ramadan. It's about trying to get these two sides to come to closure on a deal that, again, would get all those hostages out and get the and get the fighting stopped. Prime Minister Netanyahu said over the weekend that regardless of what happens with the ongoing hostage talks, that they plan to go into Rafah. You just told Weija that it's not like the U.S. has seen some evacuation plan uh, from the Israelis. So no, it's not. It's not like we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. You have not. Uh, that is what I meant. Given that, do you believe that there is a, uh, a plan by the Israelis to secure the safety of the civilians in Rafah before they enter Rafah, which, again, the prime minister says they are planning to do no matter what? Well, the prime minister has also said that he has ordered the Israeli defense forces to, in producing a plan for operations in Rafah, to include in that a plan for securing the safety uh, of the more than a million refugees that are there. Again, we've not been presented one. I can't speak for the Israelis and to what degree their planning has progressed and what that looks like. Um, But the prime minister himself has said, he publicly said, that he's tasked his generals to come up with one. But but it's fair to say the U.S. wouldn't support Israeli forces going into Rafah until you all have seen a plan that makes you feel confident that there is a plan to uh, secure the safety of the civilians. That's correct. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. Families of captives embarked this morning on a four-day march from the Gaza periphery to Jerusalem under the banner United for the Release of the Hostages. Several stops and cities are planned along the way. This afternoon, a solidarity ceremony was held near the Steerroad Police Station to honor the courage of police officers in fighting terrorists on October 7th. The march set off from the site of the Nova Festival in Re'im, where over 364 people were murdered by terrorists. Renan Neutra, father of 22-year-old Israeli-American hostage Omer, spoke in English at the start of the march. 145 endless days and nights of yearning for our loved ones. We send them strength and ask them to hold a little longer. Omer, just a little longer. A deal is possible. Starting today, we will march for four days under the message, United for the Release of Hostages. We call on the public, on our families, on our friends, to join us on this march of hope from Gaza to Jerusalem. The march will begin this coming Wednesday, today, from Gaza envelope, here where we stand in Reim on October 7, and end on Saturday in Jerusalem. March with us for the hostages. No one can be left behind, the living and the murdered. The War Cabinet is responsible for ensuring that the current deal, all the hostages will be included. We cannot agree to leave any sector behind. No one should be left behind. The state of Israel cannot be fully restored without securing the release of all the hostages, the living and the murdered. And that was Ronan Neutra, whose 22-year-old son Omer Neutra is being held captive in Gaza. There are 134 hostages are held in the Gaza Strip now. 32 of them are known to be dead. Well, this song, Boa Baita, Come Home, has been a sort of an unrecognized, uncrowned anthem for the war. It's a very old song, but here's the original, Vashu Lachen.
Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi said in a speech in Cairo that in the coming days a ceasefire will be reached and then real aid to the residents of the Gaza Strip will begin. He said Egypt could continue to help the Palestinian issue until a Palestinian state was declared within the 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital. Well, ceasefire notwithstanding, the defeat of Hamas must include the IDF takeover of Rafah, and more importantly, the Philadelphia corridor along the frontier with Egypt. This according to Reserve IDF Brigadier General Amir Avivi, who is the founder and chairman of Israel Defense and Security Forum. Avivi was a former deputy commander of the Gaza Division and director of the office of the IDF Chief of General Staff. Speaking in a briefing for journalists hosted by the Jerusalem Press Club, Avivi said that Hezbollah was closely watching the IDF's campaign in the Gaza Strip. When the Israeli army will start a ground incursion, it doesn't matter whether it's Gaza or Lebanon, nothing will stop it. It will be just a matter of time until we manage to reach our goals of war. And I think that Hezbollah knows that and they understand and they see what we're doing to Hamas. And when we're going into Rafah, this is going to be in the south the decisive battle that will destroy Hamas as a governmental and military entity. And the next question that I, Hezbollah will have to ask themselves is, do we want to find ourselves in the same reality? Destroyed. Um, so this is why, by the way, it's so important to first and foremost defeat Hamas. Send a clear message to all the Middle East. Don't mess up with us. Don't mess with us because you'll pay a heavy price. Even to the extent of extinction uh, of this organization in Gaza. And um, following the defeat of Hamas, we'll see really how willing Hezbollah is to fight or are they going to withdraw uh, north of the Litani and prevent a war. To bring down Hamas as a governmental and military entity, this can take weeks or a few months. The Prime Minister talked about weeks once we go into Rafah. Uh, maybe it will be a bit more. To really clean, clean up the Gaza Strip, that can take years. Now, in order to prevent the buildup of a terror army again, two things need to happen on the military level. One is full Israeli military control on the Egyptian border, on the Gazan side, in Rafah, in Philadelphia. We cannot have a reality where endless amount of weapons, know-how, money, technology 
are coming from Egypt into the Gaza Strip as it happened in the last 17 years. And the second thing we need is full freedom of operation of the IDF everywhere in the Gaza Strip uh, endlessly. Um, and uh, this is very similar to the conditions that we have in Judah Samaria and the West Bank. We have the Jordan Valley and we have full freedom of operation of the IDF. And this is what enables us to keep things under control and not uh, deal with an army of 35,000 uh, armed to the teeth terrorists as uh, we are dealing now in the war in Gaza. Um, we have Ramadan uh, beginning in 12 days. So uh, regarding the operation of Rafah, do you know how um, the talks, the stalled talks, or the John talks for like a hostage uh, exchange deal or end the beginning of Ramadan uh, are going to affect the fighting, the continuation of the fighting in Gaza? Well, I think that Ramadan shouldn't be uh, a consideration in the plans of war. I mean, we're not taking in consideration Passover uh, as part of uh, our military plans, so we're not supposed to take in consideration Ramadan. Um, we are in the midst of talks about a hosted deal. It's uh, obvious that Hamas is doing everything they can to postpone the ground incursion into Rafah because I understand that that's it. That's the end. Once we destroy uh, the battalions uh, of Hamas in Rafah and reach to the, the leadership and also the hostages who are almost all of them in Rafah, that's game over for Hamas. So they're trying to find ways to uh, maybe create a reality in their eyes that we won't go into Rafah. I don't see any scenario where Israel is, Israel is not going into Rafah. So the only question is, is there going to be a ceasefire? Are we going to have a few weeks of a hostage uh, release or not? Or are we going into a ground incursion? Uh, we need to move the Palestinians out of Rafah. I mean, we moved them 40 kilometers from the north to the south. Now we have to move them three, four kilometers to the coastal area or to Hanunas. It's much simpler than what we did at the beginning of the war. Uh, they don't have to move a lot. Uh, we'll clear Rafah from citizens and then um, we'll go in. And uh, I think that the uh, world will be amazed of the amount of munition that we're going to find there, the amount of money, the leadership, uh, also hostages, and the, the how big the tunnels are that connect Egypt into Gaza. It's a whole enterprise, billions, uh, which we'll have to really close and uh, make sure that uh, there is no flow of capabilities into, into the Gaza Strip. Can the IDF destroy, destroy the tunnels in Rafah without a full above-ground operation, or does the evacuation of civilians have to take place, as you said? No, you cannot deal with the tunnels uh, that are coming from Egypt without uh, taking over Rafah, uh, because the border uh, with Egypt is just like 100 meters attached to Rafah, to a very densely populated area. It's not safe to operate uh, there without controlling uh, the city itself. So basically controlling the Egyptian border requires controlling Rafah. 
uh, and Israel will have to go in and uh, deal with this. Uh, what I'm worried about is that if we do a hostage deal, and obviously it's not going to be all the hostages that are talking about 40, uh, we'll still have uh, more than 90 hostages in the hands of uh, Hamas. Uh, if Hamas understands that after this ceasefire, Israel will go in, they will escape with hostages to Egypt. And from there to Iran, this is something that really worries me. I don't see all the leadership staying in Rafah waiting to die. Uh, not of them are such, not all of them are such big heroes uh, or suicide uh, mentality. And uh, I'm really, really worried. And I, I don't feel we can 100% trust the ability of the Egyptians to prevent Hamas from escaping to the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, and this is something that I think that the Prime Minister, the Minister of Defense, the Cabinet, they have to take this in account. Because they need to look at the overall well-being of all the hostages. Not the only the ones they want to release now. Um, so it's a big dilemma. Whether to just go in and really reach the hostages and negotiate on the ground release or release them forcibly with force. Or try to reach now a deal before we go to Rafah. You mentioned um, full control of the Philadelphia corridor, the Rafah Egypt border. Does this not uh, necessitate a change to the uh, Camp David Accords because these uh, determine the number of soldiers on each side of the border? Well, I think it's time to realize, especially talking about Gaza, that the guidelines the Prime Minister set last week, which, by the way, are completely aligned with IDSF and we were very involved in writing these guidelines. These guidelines, I would say, formally end Oslo and formally end the disengagement. Uh, this process has failed 100%. We paid a heavy, heavy price in life for decisions we made in the last 30 years. And uh, now uh, this is going to change completely. We're going back to our reality, much, much more similar to uh, the days before Oslo. Reserve IDF Brigadier General Amir Avivi. Now a look at the, mid, uh, the uh, headlines. Hamas fires dozens of rockets from South Lebanon. One scores direct hit on a building in Kiryat Shmuna. No injuries. The IDF destroyed the launcher. Hostage families began a four-day march from the site of the Nova Party massacre to Jerusalem. Five organizations supporting the families of hostages are awarded this year's Genesis Prize. 85% of soldiers who sought mental help for PTSD returned to combat duty. Tel Aviv and Jerusalem mayors are re-elected. Former Finance Minister Avraham Shochat dies at 87. And gasoline prices rise as the government records record profits from natural gas sales and the weather warmer. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant this evening say, said the war obligated enlarging the army and all sectors of society, in particularly the ultra-Orthodox Jewish men, were needed to participate. He called for efforts to be made to reach an agreement with the ultra-Orthodox coalition parties to pass legislation that would open the way to draft yeshiva students. He said today there is a real national necessity to extend the service of soldiers and reservists. When the burden of servants continues to increase, I say one thing clearly. This war proved everyone must be conscripted. 
Moving on, yesterday's national nationwide municipal election saw a record low number of voters, less than 40-50%, as some key cities saw popular mayors re-elected while some longtime mayors were voted out. While official results will not be released until the tally of the double envelopes are counted, the Likud has declared the outcomes announced overnight as a resounding victory for the Likud party and the right wing. We congratulate our mayors and heads of councils on the exceptional victory and wish all much much success in working for the citizens, the party said in a statement. In these elections, the Likud shifted municipalities from the left to the right in such places as Cholon, Yerucham, Arad, and other places. The right-wing bloc has strengthened around the country, the party said. Well, voter turnout in yesterday's elections amid the ongoing war was 49%, seven percentage points lower than the previous local elections in 2018. Elections were postponed and communities evacuated in the north and south due to the security situation. Preliminary results in some of the major cities. Jerusalem's mayor, Moshe Leon, won another term, as expected, with 81% of the vote. In Tel Aviv, veteran mayor Ron Khuldai was also re-elected. Haifa will hold a runoff round between former mayor Yona Yehav, uh, who received 36% of the vote, and David Etzioni, with about 22%. Incumbent mayor Enat Kalish Rotem drew less than 5%. In Cholon, veteran mayor Moti Sasson was defeated after three decades in office by Shai Kenan, who won 43% of the vote. Khan reports that for the first time in Israel's history, a transgender individual has been elected to serve on a local council. Sheila Weinberg in Kiryat Tivon. In London, a new poll finds that over half of the UK's Conservative Party members believe Islam is a threat to the British way of life. 58% of the 521 Tory Party members surveyed by Opium say Islam poses a threat to the country. The survey also found that 52% believe the conspiracy theory that certain areas in European cities are under Sharia law and are off-limits to non-Muslims. The British government announced today that it was stepping up security for lawmakers after politicians reported threats and intimidations connected to the Israel-Hamas war. And Home Secretary James Cleverly has suggested to pro-Palestinian demonstrators who have been protesting every fortnight since the Israeli move into Gaza that enough is enough and that as it's costing the police so much overtime and money, they should stop. But as we hear from our London correspondent, Jerry Lewis, it's clear that the main organizers, the Palestinian Palestine Solidarity Campaign, have no intention of either ending or cutting back on their highly disruptive marches. James Cleverly, the Home Secretary, has told pro-Palestinian demonstrators to stop their regular Gaza protests because they've made their point and are now putting a huge pressure on London policing. He told the Times newspaper that demonstrations, which are now taking place every fortnight in central London, are not really saying anything new. And he added it was vital that no MP felt bullied into changing their stance on the Israel-Gaza war in light of the protests. Addressing the protest organisers, he said, I think they should recognise that they've made their point, they've made it loudly, and they're not adding to it by repeating themselves. The Times also quoted the Home Secretary as saying that the government is giving consideration to make changes to the rules governing protests, to require organisations of a demonstration to give police more than the current six days' notice, a move which the Home Affairs Committee recommended amongst a range of new measures in a report published earlier this week. Chris Philp, the policing minister, said this week that the six-day notice period could be extended to a fortnight 
he repeated Cleverly's call for march organisers to wind down their demonstrations, saying 600 arrests had been made since they began. But he also stressed that free speech and the right to protest were the cornerstones of a democratic society. London and some other regional centres have seen large-scale demonstrations with, in the capital's case, an estimated quarter of a million demonstrators being addressed by a variety of left-wing political leaders and other pro-Palestinian activists. And such is the effect on London's West End that Jews have been frightened to go into town when the protesters are on the streets. The government have already banned Hamas flags and warned demonstrators that chanting jihad will lead to those being caught finding themselves arrested. A report from the Home Affairs Select Committee found that more than £25 million was spent on policing pro-Palestinian protests between October the 7th and December the 17th. £19 million had been spent by Scotland Yard and another £6.5 million spent by forces outside the capital. The committee said the marches were draining police resources and preventing their ability to respond to neighbourhood crime. Matt Twist, the Mets Protestant Police's Assistant Commissioner, has said that the protests have led to the greatest period of sustained pressure on the force since the London Olympics in 2012. Cleverly questioned the point of the marches continuing to take place on such a regular basis. He said it's putting a huge amount of pressure onto UK policing, not just the Metropolitan Police, but also other police forces. And the question I ask myself is, what are these protests genuinely hoping to achieve? They've made their point, they've made it very, very loudly, and I'm not sure that these marches every couple of weeks add value to the argument. They're not really saying anything new. He said it was vital that MPs were not forced to change their stance on the Gaza conflict due to threats from protesters. I think it's really important that no one, no parliamentarian, feels that they should be bullied into taking a position they don't believe is the right position, the Home Secretary said. So I genuinely don't know what these regular protests are seeking to achieve. They've made their position clear. We recognise that there are many in the UK that hold that position. We respect that. But the UK government's position is a disagreement with that for very practical and well-thought-out reasons. The UK government's position is carefully thought out. It's pragmatic. We've made absolutely clear that ultimately, and this has been a long-standing position for the UK government, we want to see a sustainable two-state solution. However, Cleverly was accused of not understanding the importance of protest by the director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Ben Jamal, who told Times Radio that ministers regard it as a hindrance and something that should be suppressed, he added that Cleverly didn't seem to share the same concern of protesters who were appalled by genocide. The next mass pro-Palestinian march planned for London is due to take place in a week on Saturday and comes after police were forced to close Tower Bridge to vehicles and pedestrians when demonstrators lit flares as they demanded a ceasefire in Gaza last weekend. 
However, pro-Palestinian protesters are planning to occupy branches of Barclays this Saturday, calling for a boycott against the bank over its historic links to Israel. Last month, hundreds of protesters occupied branches in cities and towns across the UK and brandished banners featuring the phrase, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. This is Jerry Lewis at the House of Commons, London. A German warship shot down two drones in the Red Sea today amid escalating attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen and efforts by the European Union to protect international shipping. The German naval frigate Hessen, which was deployed earlier this month to the region, shot the drones down within 20 minutes of each one being fired. A defense ministry spokesman told the news briefing they declined to comment on the target of those projectiles. Back here at home, the Genesis Prize, often called the Jewish Nobel Prize, announced today that this year's million-dollar award has been awarded to five Israeli organizations providing treatment, counseling, and support to the released and rescued hostages and their families. The foundation will also contribute to the international public awareness campaign to ensure that the plight of the hostages remains on top of the agenda of the global leaders. According to the Genesis Prize, the five recipients are the Hostages and Missing Families Forum, the Jaffe, Jewish Agency for Israel Fund for Victims of Terror, Levachad, Natal, the Israel Trauma and Resiliency Center, one family overcoming terror together. A petition has been filed with the High Court against the Education Minister's decision to downsize the Israel Prize Award categories this year, cancel those in the, canceling those in the fields of academic research. The petitioner, Attorney Shachar Ben Meir, accused the Minister of acting without authority and in violation of the award regulation in what he described as an attempted political takeover of the most important traditions in the state of Israel. Keish announced earlier this week that because of the war, the prize would only be awarded in two categories related to civilian volunteerism. Earlier reports, however, suggested that his move was intended to prevent the prize in one of the categories from being granted to a prominent government critic. Former cabinet minister and Knesset member Avraham Baige Shochat has died at Ichilov Hospital in Tel Aviv. He was 88 years old. Shochat, a founder of Kibbutz Nachal Oz in the Gaza periphery, served as the mayor of Arad for more than two decades. He later served as finance minister in the governments of Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak. He is to be buried on Friday at the Kiryat Shaul Cemetery in Tel Aviv. More news coming up, but first this song. I Follow Rivers by Ronnie Alter, who is an Israeli singing in English.
prosecutor has filed charges against a former squad commander in the career brigade in the death of private dennis zinoviv killed when a head grenade he brought back to his quarters from training exploded according to the charge sheet the soldier had shown the grenade to the other troops and the commander but the latter did nothing about it and he did not report the incident the searches for nine-year-old Hemanyut Kasau have entered their third day. The girl was last seen in the security camera footage from Sunday evening, entering the absorption center where she lives in Svat to distribute municipal election leaflets. More pain at the pump. Gasoline prices will be going up at midnight tomorrow by about 2%, which is 13 agarot a liter. The maximum price of a liter of 95-octane gasoline will be 7 shekels and 51 agarot. Meanwhile, it turns out that the government has earned whopping profits from the sale of state of the state's natural resources over the past year. Globes reports today that the National Resource Administration in the Ministry of Energy and Infrastructure reports record revenues uh, in 2023 of nearly 2.2 billion shekels from natural gas, minerals, and aggregates royalties. This is almost 30% more than in the previous year. This is mainly due to higher exports of natural gas to Jordan and Egypt. Adam Teva Vadin, the Israel Union for Environmental Defense, ridiculed the increased revenues, saying that it came at the expense of a shortage of local gas supplies, higher electricity costs, and more pollution. The second Latino Americana Festival Music Festival will take place at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art next week. International artists from Cuba, Argentina, Brazil, Italy, Germany, Cape Verde will join Israeli counterparts for a program featuring the diverse rhythms and melodies of Latin American music. Festival Artistic Director Ziv Ben spoke to our reporter Nomi Segel about the upcoming festival and why at this time it is especially important for the event to go ahead. Well, yes, we are all suffer. Um, especially the families of the hostages, but we are trying to uh, overcome as much as we can, and also the citizens of the, of the country, of course. I think uh, they need some uh, fresh air, some refreshments, some some uh, places to go out and uh, listen, on, not only for news and television, also some music, some culture. It's not easy because uh, not all artists are willing to come to Israel. There are still 
many, many of them are were afraid, uh, which is really not uh, the best friend anymore. You know, things like that, which we involve politics and arts, we try to split them. But uh, within a festival, with guests from abroad, very, very good artists which will come. Also among them, um, Maria de Barras will come. We'll have uh, Mario Stefano, the uh, bandoneon player, tango, and many others. Also Israeli, uh, that play beautifully this kind of uh, genre. So tell us a little bit about the idea behind the festival and what's in store for this current second edition. Yes. Um, the idea is to combine the uh, Latin, uh, Latin America, which is the South American, the Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, and uh, this country that's on this continent with the um the, uh, which uh, with the caribbean music with the salsa music the cuban the islands music um the south american and the latino it's quite different but we since it's the same region uh, uh more or less uh, we put them together with beautiful rhythm beautiful harmonies uh, exotic singers and uh, melodies and beautiful uh, tradition uh, for uh, this coming festival. We'll have, um, we'll start on uh, Thursday with the Cannibal Ederly Bossa Nova CD, which is coming from the 60s. The beautiful melodies uh, that he plays with the saxophone, and uh, the soloist will be Lenny Sandersky. Then uh, we'll do also the um, uh, concerto for Brazil with the Shorele Ensemble which is very jumpy ensemble uh, with uh, partly Israelis, partly um, Brazilian immigrants who uh, live in Israel. We'll do, of course, the beautiful Cape Verde, the songs of uh, Cesaria Evora with Maria de Barros. Uh, she comes uh, from Cape Verde. And, uh, of course, we'll do the Brazil Primavera with the duo, beautiful duo of... Uh, Marcelo Nami and Joka Parpignan, uh, the beautiful Brazilian melodies, uh, some uh, original composition, uh, guitar and cushion. These are only duo, but it's very rich in sound and rhythm and, of course, voices. And as you mentioned, the music is quite diverse. The origins of each region. Is there a sense of some sort of arc connecting um the different pieces of music, where yes, the music uh, came it's from. Based on, it's based on geography, but uh, mainly it's it's uh, the rhythms came from uh, West African, uh, the slaves who brought them also to New Orleans, but they brought them to Cuba and to the islands, um, the, the Caribbean islands, and then they met the European, uh, the European harmony, the European instruments, exactly as as made in uh, in uh, New Orleans. And this went far further to the South, uh, South American countries. And uh, I would say that the South American uh, melodies or culture are more influenced by the European and um, European culture and the island, the Latino, uh, influenced more by the uh, West African and the traditional rhythms and traditional uh, some melodies and some ceremonies even. Uh, so uh, we put them together. They are based on the uh, encounter of the cultures, 
the African and the European countries, which got different colors uh, from the South American countries and the Caribbean islands. So when and where is all this happening? The festival will take place at the Tel Aviv Museum from the 7th of March, 7th, 8th, 9th in March. Um, we'll start uh, the 7th of March in the afternoon, but uh, till late at night. And then on Friday, the 8th and the 9th, the other day, we'll start in the morning, quite uh, 11 o'clock, half past 11. We'll have the choir that sings the Misa Criosa. Uh, with the singers and the 30 singers of the choir and some soloists and singers, of course. We'll have the Black Samba ensemble, which uh, will take place with all rhythms and percussions uh, during the festival. And uh, we'll have, of course, of course, of course, the tribute to Astro Gilberto with Ligia Oliveira and uh, Giva Perman Quintet, which the beautiful... Uh, of, of Astro Gilberto, of uh, Antonio Carlos Jubin, the girl from Ipanema, you know, and uh, once I loved, and uh, all these beautiful, the shadow of your smile, and all these beautiful uh, songs and melodies. Ziv Ben, director of the Latino Americana Music Festival, March 7th through the 9th. More information can be found at hotjazz.co.il. Well, how do you say in Hebrew, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? 60 years ago, the movie Mary Poppins came out. And in honor of this, here's one of its hit songs, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, sung in Hebrew.
חיים, צ'ימיני, צ'ים, צ'ימיני, צ'ים, צ'ים, צ'ירי, מנקה ערובות בר מזל שכמותי. צ'ים, צ'ימיני, צ'ים, צ'ימיני, צ'ים, צ'ים, צ'ירו, תקבלו את המזל כשידיי תלחצו. נשיקות תשלחי, גם הם יעזרו. מרי פופן, 60 years. Taking a look at the weather, slightly warmer tomorrow, mainly in the coastal plain and the lowlands. In most areas of the country, easterly winds will prevail and there will be, might be fog. On Friday, warmer, and on Saturday, it will be unseasonably hotter. Temperatures forecast for tonight and tomorrow, Jerusalem from 8 to 16, in Tel Aviv and Jaffa, 10 to 23, in Haifa from 13 to 20, in Svat from 10 to 14, in Tiberias and Beersheba from 9 to 22, And in a lot, from 11 tonight, going up to 27 degrees Celsius tomorrow. Now, another look at the main headlines. Hamas fires dozens of rockets from South Lebanon. One scores a direct hit on a building in Kiryat Shmona. No injuries. The IDF destroyed the launcher. Hostage families began march, a four-day march from the site of the Nova Party massacre to Jerusalem. Five organizations supporting the families of hostages are awarded this year's Genesis Prize. 85% of soldiers who sought mental help for PTSD returned to combat service. Tel Aviv and Jerusalem mayors are re-elected. Former finance minister Avraham Shochat dies at age 88. Gasoline prices rise as the government records record profits from natural gas sales and the weather warmer. That's the news. Join us again tomorrow night at 8 p.m. on Conreca, the foreign languages channel of the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. Watch our 2 p.m. news flash on the Khan English Facebook page, or you can write to us at khanenglish at khan.org.il. Together with sound engineer Asaf Moskovitz, this is Arieh O'Sullivan wishing you a good evening and shalom from Jerusalem.